I have a really great PowerPoint presentation for you. Um, <laughs> really strange day. Um, when, you, uh, when you race to church because uh, your internet's down at home and you get to church, you're going to use the internet at church uh, to upload the PowerPoint so that it's ready to go at 7.15 on uh, Wednesday. And then you find out that you don't have internet at church either which all of our troubleshooting minds just concluded that the problem is not with the internet at my house or at the church, but instead it is a problem with the computer that I'm trying to use to uh, pull it off of. So that's not very enlightening. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. <laughs> Let's take a moment and I'll open us in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your provision for us, for how you meet our every need. And um, Father, the greatest need we have is uh, to wake up, to recognize what life is about. You've done that wonderfully for us through your word. Thank you for also meeting our eternal need of life with you through your son and his work on the cross. Thank you, Father, that as we've been studying lately, that your spirit makes intercession for us when we don't know what to pray for. We also know that your son lives ever to make intercession for us so that What's going on with us is center stage of your consciousness, of your awareness, and we thank you for that wonderful uh, encouragement. Now, Father, please strengthen us by your Spirit and what he's given us through the Apostle John. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> All right, if you please turn your Bibles to First uh, John chapter 1. I confess that I think the epistle of 1 John is a very challenging uh, letter. I'm glad to announce that I think it's challenging. And I think the clearest, easiest part to understand is chapter 1, truly, in 1 John 1. And last time, uh, Sunday morning, we looked at the first uh, four verses of 1 John 1 because... John is telling us how we have fellowship with God. We, in this age of Christ, having come, died for our sins, risen and been exalted at the right hand of the Father, in this age that is the gathering together of the church, the body of Christ, the mystery of one new man, Jew and Gentile, as this new agency called the church, with the new arrangement in which God has put His Spirit into all of our hearts, as we believe in Christ, we receive the indwelling and other ministries of the Spirit for the purpose of the Spirit filling us. There remains the need for instruction about what it is to walk with God in a way that pleases Him. There's a lot you could say from all through the New Testament about God equipping you in terms of your position, in terms of setting you up to be who you're supposed to be, but then there's the being, there's the doing, the living, the life. So we're talking about the Christian spiritual life and looking at walking in fellowship with God. And the interesting statement again from uh, verse 3 is that we write these things, we proclaim to you these things about Christ so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship is apostolic. And it is a relationship with God through the awareness of Him and what He's revealed through the apostles. And that means that um, we really probably don't, any of us, take the Scriptures as seriously as we should. We're saying that there is a channel of connectedness to God called fellowship that's available through John and the other apostles in their writing. And it isn't just reading the Bible and reading the Bible and reading the Bible going through motions. It's not saying prayers five times a day 
and you say the same thing every time and you just get into your routine and you're not really connecting to what you're doing. We're talking about sharing in common something with God, fellowship, koinonia, to share something in common. And so um, I think this passage is one of your key places in the scriptures to describe Christian fellowship with God and, um, and a, a key theme that, he's going to, that John will develop through here it involves personal sin because the problem is walking in the light. The need is that we would walk in the light. Let me see if this shows up. Well, at least you can get the back, the, the shell for the, for the slides that did not make it over. <laughs> the, the imagery of light and darkness. As we saw in John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then the, the rest of John 8 is how they reject him, how the darkness hates the light. What's the light? What's, what's going on with light? Well, one big hint is that sin is the opposite. If we have sin, if we're sinful, then we're not walking in the light. As he himself is in the light, we're walking in darkness. And I think light is a reference through the epistles of the New Testament to the righteousness of God. The absolute, infinite, personal goodness of the Creator. That righteousness has been declared to your account and mine. That's a work of God called justification, where he declares not just that you're not guilty, but that you're righteous. And I wouldn't say it in the negative sense. I'd say it in 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 a stronger positive. You're declared righteous, justified by God. And this is how God is accepting us. He's perfectly righteous. That's the standard. He doesn't accept less than the standard. So how do we rise to that standard? He saves us. That's salvation. That's justification. And that, I think, in John and also in Paul is described as light. You have the light. Don't hide it. But it's not just something that you get once and then, well, now I'm good, the way the apostles describe it. It's something in which we walk. Now, you have the life. Are you going to live the life? And that's what 1 John's about. It's telling Christians you need to live this life. It's radical. It is not what the world would expect. In fact, it's directly opposed to the world. As you can read in chapter 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. And it is uh, not hedging on our personal sin. It's absolutely insistent that we deal with personal sin. Well, the image there on the screen is of a person who is in darkness but has found the one channel, has found the one outlet where there can be light, where there is. And that person is going to the light and as the light floods into that dark space, Walking in the light. That's the idea. That's the imagery I, I think can help capture what John is doing as we walk in a darkened world, yet we walk in the light as God himself is in the light. So my goal tonight is to uh, work through um, verses 5 through 10, and I'm very compromised in my, uh, my current health situation. And uh, so I had, uh, I had written out 30 summary points so that, because I won't be able to think through it all. And I was going to make you read them as I read them to you on the screen, and God had other plans. So now I think I'll just read them to you off my laptop, and, um, <laughs> and you won't be able to see them. How's that? Um, let's read through the passage, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do a McGee. I'll, just, I'll give you the highlights as best I can from uh, what, what the, the, the Greek is doing, um, and, uh, and we'll trust in the Lord. In fact, I can put the Greek on the screen. He says in verse 5, This is the message which we heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Maybe that verse 5 is the most important verse in all six verses, because it's specifically about God. This is what we call theology proper. And it puts the lie to Satan's claim that God is not good or he's not good enough. There are all kinds of ways Satan, in his broken wisdom, brings accusations against God. The first one we read in Genesis 3 is that he's lying to you and that he doesn't want the best for you. And I think those are two ways of describing darkness. And in God, there is no darkness at all. If you think you've discovered darkness in God, that's a problem in our understanding according to the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I want to have fellowship with God, 
I'm going to get it from what they give me, and I'm going to believe God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Theology proper, the character, the very character of God. And I believe, again, that if you wanted to say, okay, how does this compare to our understanding, our systematic theological understanding of God's character? What's the reference in terms of light? What is light referring to? Well, fellowship in verse 3 is the apostle's word, the word of God. Fellowship is the word, the apostolic prophetic word of God. That's how you have fellowship with them and, and therefore with God. Um, verse 7, we'll see, or verse 6, we'll see that uh, walking in darkness is not walking in the light. It's contradictory. So there's a problem of sin. That's a reference to sin. And so I conclude, as I've said, that this has to do with the righteousness of God on display, light. Let me contrast that with, uh, with recent history. Not too many decades ago, we saw historically the Enlightenment. Because after all, it was the end of the Dark Ages, and we had discovered new ways of thinking and reasoning. The great epistemic, epistemic philosophers uh, were on the scene, and then we knew that from Descartes, we can reason, and Francis Bacon and others, we can observe. And we have these two systems where we are now the arbiter, the determiner of what is, because all we know is what we ourselves know, whether it's from observation or from my own internal reasoning. And this was supposed to be an enlightenment of mankind because it shut down the dark ages, you know, back then when they believed in the flat earth and the, the earth was the center of the universe, except that a great Christian scientist, not Christian scientist, but a a Christian who was a great scientist said, no, the earth rotates around the sun. Um, the, the Enlightenment was called this because now we can think. The idea was that in the West, we're now free to think without the shackles of superstition, emotionalism, mysticism. Science and rationality are going to be the new vehicles that get us to the, the Superman is really where some of this ended up with Nietzsche. Well, today the Enlightenment is kind of done. I mean, it did its job. I don't think that the job it did resulted in greater light, not what John's talking about. But what it, it did teach us to think in a certain, certain categories in certain ways. But um, it didn't really do what we wanted it to do, what the West wanted to do. The philosophers were looking for freedom from the shackles of, of, of superstition and, and tradition that had kept people down. And, um, and so, ultimately, the Catholic Church was a great culprit. And um, I don't think there's a greater embodiment of the morality of the Enlightenment than the French Revolution, where the idea was we get rid completely of this superstitious Christian religion, albeit Catholic, because France didn't fully reform, didn't reform. They, they rejected the Reformation. But they, in, they, they invented a new religion to reason and to uh, the great ideals, a, a neo-paganism to worship at the, at the shrine of liberty, eternity, uh, fraternity, equality. And um, uh, it was a huge disaster, and you needed someone to line cannons up on the street to finally shut it down. And little, little Napoleon, ultimately, it'll be this, this mob rule with mass decapitations. Madame la guillotine kills thousands and thousands of people, including the people that started it, until Monsieur Napoleon stops it. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but this is, this is the morality of the godlessness that is supposedly enlightening the world. Now, I don't think that a, a mass illiteracy, uh, a mysticism that looks more for relics than the word of God, the, all the things that the ref reformers were opposed to, I don't think these uh, trappings of, of the dark ages were any more of enlightening than the philosophies of the godless in the, in the enlightenment. But I, I do think that we already had the Reformation. We already heard sola scripture, sola gratia, sola, sola fide, sola Christ, it's only Christ, however you decline that one. 
only only the, the the solos of the Reformation were already there before the Enlightenment. So my my contention is that um, we're hearing two different versions of light. Two different versions of light. The secular version and Enlightenment says this: we didn't know, but we believed in this God who never delivered. And so now what we need to do, oh, no, stay over here. And so now to be enlightened is to be freed from this superstitious bondage to faith claims without ever telling the truth that we're making all these faith claims. But we're free from bondage to superstition, including religion. And so we'll just learn with our reason and our science. That's the enlightenment. So the, the, the eyes are opened and enlightened to science, reason. What John's talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit's enlightenment of the man with the truth is that God's light is a reflection of his infinite holy righteousness. It's not that now you get access to knowledge that you can't have. It's not that, see all, the, all this lockdown reasoning of the, they didn't really conclude anything. That, they, they got some really great technology out of it and then we had the atomic bomb and everybody's like, well, that's not really that great. That's why postmodernism rejects a lot of the Enlightenment rationalism. But here, the, what the Bible's talking about has nothing to do with um, uh, <laughs> freedom from superstition. It, it's really about freedom from deception from God's enemy, where there's darkness. It's about the morality of an infinitely personal and righteous God who shows you himself and that righteousness. And then you're walking in the light as he himself is in the light. I told you tonight I'm going to be a little clumsy, but that's my goal is to, to show enlightenment. They had some good points. And I like the Scottish enlightenment. I think the Scottish uh, version of the enlightenment is the most valuable, but uh, read more read than Hume for sure. But what John's talking about is, is far better because the problem isn't the shackles of organized religion that is a problem in the gospels the problem isn't isn't the things that we tend to think the problem is that we're sinful within and the world is opposed to god without and so we are doubly struggling to to get a glimpse of our creator it's it's a moral problem and the word of god gets you there the word of god brings forth this enlightenment and so verse five is heavy metaphysics it's heavy theology god is absolutely morally righteous and in him there is no compromise there's no sinful compromise in the in the creator in verse six that's what it says in greek new american standard says if we say that we have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth interestingly for the philosophers Truth and falsehood is a major theme through this discussion of fellowship with God. There's an if-then structure, and I'm calling this the first rationale, John's first um, fellowship rationale, and it's a negative one. Again, verse 6, If we should say that fellowship we are having with Him, and in the darkness we are walking, we're lying. All present tense verbs except for the first one, if we should say. All descriptions of things that you can do in your experience right now, believer in Jesus Christ. If we should say. Now the reason John emphasizes the speech, and he does it in every one of these rationales, every one of these verses is going to be something we say. If we should say these things is a way for him to surface the idea to see if you're buying into it. Because he's attacking the thought before the action. Before we act righteously, we need to think in terms of God's righteousness. And so there's always this reference to how you say it. It's also important to recognize that when we speak, when we speak, we're fulfilling what God made us as his image to reflect him. And when we speak, we're supposed to tell the truth about him. And when we lie about him to cover our tracks because we're sinners, that's a big contradiction of what he made us to be. So if we should say that fellowship, 
This word fellowship, this is going to be so fun for you. Koinonia. Koinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, is the theme of this passage and I think of the book. Verse 3 in chapter 1, fellowship with God. And then here, fellowship with God, which is really the reason you're here. The reason as a believer in Jesus Christ you're still here is because God wants a relationship with you. Now let's talk about what fellowship is. Koinonia. The, the language we're reading here is Koine Greek. You hear that? Koine Greek, K-O-I-N-E, Koinonia. It's because it's common Greek, street, street Greek. It's what the average person speaks. It's soldier Greek. Alexander helped us with that when he made Greek the language of the Mediterranean world. Common Having something in common is what we mean when we say fellowship. It's an old English usage to call it fellowship, but it would be just as well said, or perhaps better in your, your modern language, sharing in common. Sharing something in common. If I'm sharing something with God, maybe I'm conscious of it every moment. It maybe it's something that's just part of my life that it's real, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's the context for what I'm really focused on. I think it's possible that those are both true at times. But the fact is that I'm sharing something in common and it's something that he is really sharing with me. I am at his table. He spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies. All right? And my cup runneth over. I am receiving what he is offering and I'm enjoying that with him. Now, if we should say that fellowship we are having with him but in better English, he fronts the idea of fellowship, but if we should say that we're having fellowship with him and in the darkness we are walking, if that's true, that I say one thing, but I'm doing another, I can assent that I should be having fellowship with him. I can say righteousness is good and I want to reflect God's righteousness. I can say all kinds of things that are true and believe them in the moment. But if we're saying that we are therefore having fellowship with him, but in our practices we are conducting our lives, walking in darkness, then what? We are lying. Pseudo my. Pseudo my. We are lying and we are not doing, poieo, doing the truth or practicing the truth. Poieo is your stock word in Greek for doing something, to do. Asa in Hebrew. So it's a pretty simple statement. If we say we have fellowship with, God, with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And I think uh, teasing out a little bit of the detail here, the idea goes from, yeah, I love the Lord. Yeah, I'm, I'm walking with God. Well, what about your actual walk that's in darkness or sin? The problem of the darkness and the light is sin and righteousness. How are you having fellowship with God if you're walking in darkness is the question to ask the mirror or the children or someone that you have that kind of relationship where you can have that kind of conversation. We live in a world of Christendom in this culture. In many ways, heirs of Europe and it's Christian culture where we say one thing and do another. And it's that hypocrisy that plagues us. And I, I want to be careful. Don't try to dodge this and say, oh, this is for unbelievers. You can defang the whole New Testament and say, oh, that's for unbelievers when it's actually attacking you and your walk right now, including whether, you, whether your faith produces works. Now, this is for you. If we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Can I echo that with something Paul says? In Galatians 5.16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16. It's a very clear statement. It's the same topic. It's going to be one or the other. I'm going to have fellowship and share his righteousness in my experience in common with him, 
or I'm going to walk in darkness. You see the, the, the thing that's being presented? Now, the beautiful thing about this to me is it's so different from the legalism that we sli- slide into. We, wanna, we, we, we run away from the relationship and we slip into the cider house rules. We want to print a list of rules and just say, well, I'm keeping these mostly. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not God or anything, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay with me because I looked at the rules and I'm satisfied with my performance. There's the rules. But doing that takes away what we're talking about in, in John's writing. He's talking about having fellowship with God. It's not whether I'm satisfied with my performance with the rules. It's whether I'm engaging with my, with my father and sharing his character in common with him. The number one attack on this kind of thinking is the worldly claim that we're suggesting self-righteousness. I'm very sensitive. I'm hypersensitive to that claim. Oh, well, you just think. You just think you're better than other people because you're a Christian. That's why you act all high and mighty and uppity. (laughs) What do you mean I act uppity? Well, you don't talk this way and you don't go do these things with us. And you don't participate in the, 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 the deeds of wickedness that we like to participate in. And so you're self-righteous and you think you're better than we are. That's a very infantile uh, response to the light. That's the darkness saying, shut the door. Leave me alone. And um, I want to steal you against that attack. Pursue righteousness as Jesus commands. Seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness. Pursue righteousness and love it more than anything else. And from that perspective of your attitude, your desire, your preference, act it out. And I think the more you lay hold of God in prayer and in his word, the more you're going to become aware of your own shortcomings, the lack of inherent righteousness you bring. It's it's God's righteousness. And as you actually say, no, we're supposed to do it God's way. And I want to please my Father. And I want to live my life for Him. And I want to be pleasing to Him. The more you act and think and choose this kind of life, the more you'll become susceptible to that claim that you think you're better than us. You're self-righteous. What do you say to such a charge? I'm glad you brought that up. That's what you say. When they say you think you're better, they think you're a goody-goody. I'm glad you mentioned that because I really want to bring out what Christians think about their own righteousness. We are sinners who need a Savior. There's nothing righteous about me but God what He's doing in me. And I have no claim to goodness or no boast about myself. It's really about him. Can I tell you about my Savior, the only righteous man ever born of woman? Can I tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ? See, that's, that's, the, that's the pivot. This is a little bit of apologetics rock drill training, okay? That's, but that's what you do. You live righteously and you let the light shine in the darkness and prepare to be accused of, of self-righteousness. Again, that is the... Th- that is the worst thing you could call me for my own sense of, uh, my, my sensibilities about myself. The worst, I don't, don't call me self-righteous. Call me anything, just don't call me self-righteous. I mean, it's like the worst. Don't call me a legalist. Oh, I hate that. Especially if it's true, but don't say it. You know, don't, I don't want to hear that claim about me. Well, when I'm actually looking to be pleasing to my father and my relationship with him is constraining my choices in my life so that I'm walking in the light as he's in the light and I'm having fellowship with him, that's way better than the people around me approving of my actions. It also provides the context. There is no gospel context for you and me without the light. Now, let's talk about a, a really important application a really important application of this. It will be common in secular-minded Christianity. Can I say that? And the, the Christian that is dead, like this functional death of Christianity where we're like the world. So we just, you know, to, get the, to, to go get the world, we got to become the world. And John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. 
the um, Jesus mean and wild stuff, the, the, the tough Jesus, the reckless love of God. Whoa, 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 God isn't reckless. He's perfectly controlled about everything he does. I know the children like to sing repetitive choruses that say he's reckless, but uh, he's not. <laughs> so so um, here's what will be said. Jesus went and dined with the sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees like you, Pharisees like you uh, said he was wrong, but he actually went and associated with those people. Now that's the claim that we brought by the worldly reimagining of Christianity, which absorbs the world. You'll see it's all tatted up. Tackle box. It's, it, it, it's all world, just, just stained by the world, even though we're told not to be stained by the world. Now what's your answer to that? If you want to help your brother, hey, I'd love to talk to you about that. That's really, don't get bound up in yourself and think, oh, that was was an argument I can't really meet. Take a deep breath and say, even if you don't know the answer yet, say, I'm glad you brought that up. We We should all practice that together. Let's say it together. I'm glad you brought that up. It's really helpful. I don't know how you would say it en français, but I'm glad that you want to talk about this. Because this topic is very important to the way the Bible teaches that we're supposed to live. Jesus did go to the tax collectors and the sinners. He did associate with a woman caught in adultery, and he was gracious to her. And he did go in and among those people. And as he did, what did he bring with him? The light. He is shining the light in the darkness. He never collected taxes and extorted his countrymen with the tax collectors. He never overdrank with the overdrinkers. He never participated in the wicked actions of the people because he never sinned in his life. You don't become sinful to go win sinners. Jesus Christ never did. He loves those people and he's here to save them from their sins. And that's how you talk to the world. You don't have to go participate in wickedness to go share the gospel with people who are conducting wickedness and that is true that tax collectors and sinners were they were lifestyle sinners lifestyle wickedness immoral practices the apostle paul again first corinthians chapter 5 i think it's verse 10 for you to i told you not to associate with people who are who are conducting their lives in pornea sexual immorality i told you don't associate with those people he means Christians. I wasn't talking about the people of this world. I was talking about brothers, those who are called brothers. I didn't mean the people of the world. If you were to avoid the people of the world that are given to fornication, you'd have to leave the planet, anticipating space travel by a few hundred years. See, Paul, Paul lived it. We lit, Paul ministered in Corinth. The things that he has to tell the Corinthian Christians, pretty shocking. Hey, don't go up to the temple of Aphrodite Christians, oh, well, we, we had it wrong, I guess. Yeah, you had it wrong. The point is that um, there are many challenges that you'll hear from darkness telling you not to shine the light. All you have to do is make sure that it really is the light. This is God's standard. This is God's character. This is what God says. This is not me. This is not what I think. You hide behind the scriptures and say, this is what God thinks. And it's loving for me to say this because he tells me it's loving for me to say this to you. And it is out of love. It's out of my desire for your best that I say this. That's God's love. So again, verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, let me do some J. Vernon McGee. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light is a reference to experience. It says in verse 5 that God is light and there is no darkness at all in him. In verse 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as he is in the light. So there is position and experience. There is the, the essence of God and then the expression of that essence in his conduct. And we're mirroring that, our position, whether you like it or not, when Christ, when, when you believed in Christ, the Spirit of God declared you righteous, that you were justified and eternally justified. That righteousness is not your own. 
It's the righteousness of God applied to your account. That's the church age doctrine of justification, but it's actually out of uh, Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed the Lord and it was declared to him as righteousness. Now, when you go from your position to walking, this is the topic John is addressing. God is perfect righteousness and he expresses that perfect righteousness. So we walk in the light as God himself is in the light. If we'll do this, we have fellowship with one another. Now, somebody do some good Bible study practices. Look in verse 7. Just look at your verse there. Who is one another in that statement of verse 7? If we walk in the light as he, God the Father, I'll show you why it's God the Father in a second, but God the Father is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. Who is one another in the immediate context? What do you think? Anybody? It's us, right? Just Christians? Now here's what, I, I think that too, and I just kind of blow through it reading fast. I, I think uh, fellowship. It means Christians have fellowship dinners, fellowship with each other. But it says if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. I think it's about me and God, us and God. Which is a much bigger deal. It's also the context of the discussion. Now, I'm not saying it can't be that. I'm saying I don't think it is. The, the, the pastor, there's nothing wrong with saying that if I'm fellowship with God, that I'm in fellowship with you, if you are too. But I think he's not talking about how we get along with each other yet. That'll be chapter two in loving one another as we obey Christ. What he's talking about here is in our practice, if we're not conducting ourselves sinfully, but if we're walking according to God's character, then we are enjoying that birthright, that fellowship with God. We have fellowship one with another. And then he sandwiches it. He puts the other other piece of bread and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, this is a reference to God the Father in the light. If we want to be Trinitarian, God is in the light because the next thing talks about Jesus, his son. So it's the Father in the beginning of verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay? And so I think that the point is that we have fellowship with God which is what John is offering in verse 3 again. Remember that we proclaim this to you because we want you to have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God. If you're walking in the light as God is in the light, then you're mirroring his character. You're enjoying that with him. And that's possible because of the word of God richly dwelling within you or the filling of the Holy Spirit. We already have in verse 7 a reference to cleansing from sin. And that makes us think that because of the word cleansing, that sin makes us unclean or dirty. That's the idea. And so now we understand we're dealing with, a, with a, 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 an antimicrobial scenario. We're, we're dealing with a very um, clean person with whom we're interacting and so we show up clean and we remain clean in his presence because sin is going to defile us, it's going to soil us and we won't be dressed for the occasion anymore. And so as we're walking in fellowship with God, as we're walking in the light as he's in the light, we're having fellowship with him and the blood of Jesus, his son, is cleansing us from all sin. It does, now notice, you still have a problem of sin. There still needs to be cleansing from sin. Now, if Paul wanted to put the, I'm sorry, John, if he wanted to put this in the past completed, like it was once for all done when I first believed, there is a sense where that's true. If that's what he was talking about, he would have said we had been cleansed or have been cleansed from all sin, but he doesn't. He says he goes on cleansing us. It's present tense. It's a way of saying there is this ongoing sense. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So even if you're not choosing wickedness, even if you're choosing to obey God, even if you're enjoying the power of the Spirit of God working in you through the Word, and you're therefore having fellowship with God, enjoying His Word and His character with Him, then when you look at what about my sin problem, Jesus is still cleaning me. I'm still 
being cleansed. I'm still kept clean by his blood. And that will be the only answer to the question of your and my sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why I think it's so important to, um, to really put sin in its place in our gospel presentation. It's very popular to make sin and rejection of sin the issue in the gospel. But that, that's, a, that's a pretty sticky problem because the only thing the sinner can do about his sin is nothing. He can't save himself from his sin. And I, I understand the idea of telling people, hey, you need to stop this and trust in the Lord. I, I appreciate that, especially when it's something that is going to kill the person, like a sin pattern that, that, that is physically self-destructive um, or just overtly out-and-out out rebellion against God. But what, what you're telling the unbeliever when you say you need to stop this is that... Um, there's something he's got in him in dealing with his problem with God. And that's a deflection from the issue of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone paid for these sins on the cross. We'll talk about how you deal with your personal sin as a Christian once we've dealt with the issue of sin as a problem separating you from God. Because the problem isn't that you're a bad boy. The problem is that you don't have eternal life. And um, I hear from time to time, well, that's, that, that gospel message of the grace of God is what's wrong with American Christendom. That's why we have so many people believe and then they, then, they, you know, then they don't really get serious with it. I'm really not sure that's been the problem. I'm with G.K. Chesterton. Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. You know, it's been found hard and not tried. See, the, the, the gospel of grace that is the beginning for your spiritual life well, that's just the very beginning of a life of, of service to God and growth in the Word. And it's radical, and it's completely opposed to the world, and we have to disciple the new babies. New believers have to be given the goods, and we have to be unwavering on the vital significance of the Word of God. And there's no, second, there's no shortcut to, to daily imbibing in the riches of God's grace in His Word. And that's not a cultural norm in any Christendom that I've observed much. The radical claim that the Scriptures make that this is how you have fellowship with God, that's not how people conduct their lives generally in Christendom. It's not because of a clear gospel presentation. It's because of a failure to understand what the Christian spiritual life is and how it's lived. Because again, if we're always wondering whether or not I really believed or if I'm really saved because I, I don't know if I believe the right kind of way. I didn't hold my mouth right when I believed. Or something else. I had my fingers crossed. If I'm always going back to that, then I'm always going back to the ob clinic. I'm always going back to the, to the birthing room to see, uh, um, was I born? Was I born? I really don't know if I was born. And that's not the spiritual life. Yes. You have God your Father if you have Christ as your Savior, and so now you need to live the life. And, but, but wait a second, but hardship comes. That's exactly what you're supposed to expect. You can't grow without a little bit of time in the gym. You have to, you have to, to work and serve and constantly trust in God as you pay attention to His Word. So I don't think it's a failure of a gospel presentation of faith in Christ alone. I think it's a problem in our culture of a failure to um, understand discipleship. And um, I'll give you a hint. It doesn't start with let's get together and, and do something for the church, church building or go take care of some people. That's not where it starts. That's the outcome of the Word of God. And that, that's where we start with the Word. I'm getting to know this one that you, like a little baby, have just trusted in. All right, so um, this is what I mean by fellowship, is having His Word and His character in common with Him. And if we'll do that in verse 7, then we're clean. You can't practice personal sin and enjoy fellowship with God in the light as He is in the light. It's a contradiction of His righteousness, the moral aspect of the light. Verse 8, this is the hard part, bad news. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, so far we've had, um, we've had, Several statements of what is said. Verse 6 is what you say. Verse 7 is walking. Verse 8 is what you say. Verse 9 is what you say. And verse 10 is what you say. 
And every one of these has an outcome in truth. And I would show you that dramatically, perhaps next time. But if we say we have no sin, I think it's important that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write this in the singular. So if we should say that hamartia, singular, accusative, it's the object of the verb, but it's the singular, if we have no sin. Verse 9 is going to say sins, but here he says sin. I think it's significant because there's a general problem that we're facing, and then there's the specific errors that we make, and those are two different issues. The general problem is my sin. The specific problem in my walk is the sins that I commit, and I can have a sin nature and not submit to it. But if we say we have no sin, that we do not, are not having, present tense, if we don't have any sin, ourselves we are deceiving. And the truth, aletheia, the truth is not in us. So we, we've just had it go further from verse 6. If we say we have fellowship and walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. In verse 8, we're lying to ourselves. You know, you're made to hear and to, to understand what you hear. You hear enough lies, sometimes you start believing them. And if you're the one saying them, you can lie to yourself enough where you start to believe it. And this is the problem. Again, I can just, so easy, throw darts at the culture. But watch what happens in our culture. You're not sinner, you're just sad. <laughs> you just don't feel self-actualized it's not, you shouldn't be feeling these, these problems of guilt because of your premarital sex or, or your lifestyle fornication or, or whatever that has destroyed your soul and your conscience. You shouldn't be feeling destroyed in your conscience. You have to understand you've got to get past that sense of guilt and shame and just recognize that, um, that, uh, that this is, a, this is a, a human construct from that traditional superstitious stuff that the Enlightenment freed us from. And, and now... Um, you should just do what feels good to you because it's what you need for your health. After all, you're just an animal. We'll, we'll, pull, we'll script, throw away the Bible, throw Darwin on it, and say you're supposed to be breeding by the time you're sexually capable. That's what you're made for. It's just your biological urges. So my conscience is defiled. My heart is broken. But um, someone comes along and saves me from those reactions that are really pathologies. They're just leftovers from my culture or inherited from my parents and, and our culture. And, I'll, and I need to learn that I'm a squirrel. And I'm just doing what feels good because I'm supposed to. See, that's, that's the uh, saying that we have no sin. The world is completely opposed to saying that we have sin, that we're sinners, that what we do is sinful. And it's really the problem sin is so easily if you can find if you're looking for the problem is look for the sin just look for the sin always if we say that we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us so so far in verse six we don't practice the truth in verse eight we're deceiving ourselves the truth is not in us in verse 9, like in verse 7, we're going to have fellowship with God. Verses 7 and 9 are the, the way to be. If you're not committing personal sin but walking in the light, then you're enjoying fellowship with God in verse 7. If we do commit personal sins, then verse 9 tells you what to do about them. If we confess our sins, those things that we know are disobedient to God, that we have done. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the if-then of verse 7, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, one of those is positive. Verse 7 is positive. Verse 9 is what you do when you have committed personal sin to get back into the positive. It seems like it would be so much easier to just pretend like nothing ever happened. We've all seen our parents uh, or somebody else's parents try to do this. 
There's a dispute. There's a fight. We get heated. There's anger involved. There's all the biological responses to anger. Adrenaline hits the bloodstream. We say things that you never even thought you would ever think you would say, much less think. And there you're saying them. And so, um, you know, stupid things happen and sin gets committed. And what do we call that when someone sins against another person? Abuse. That's what it is. That's what abuse is. Somebody sins against you. All right. So we've seen this happen. And what happens in the relationship? Well, probably the most common thing that happens is we pretend after our adrenaline kind of comes down and we kind of, it's the anger has passed. Maybe some of you are smolders. I mean, after it's passed, we just kind of like, well, I'm not angry anymore. Good night. And we pretend like it's all good. And that's, that's the way, because I don't feel it anymore. I'm not, I'm not upset anymore. But there's been a rupture. There's been a disruption in the relationship, uh, in the fellowship, in the sharing of the relationship together. And so, um, well, no, we need to actually go own it. You need to say you're sorry. You need to go and make amends and address what has been done. And I think this is what we're hearing in the relationship thing. There's been a breakdown between me and God when I commit personal sin, and he wants me to talk to him. He wants me, and as his child, to go and um, receive that which he's offering by his grace here on the basis of his character, his righteousness, and his faithfulness. Now, again, I've heard that you can't, this can't be about Christians because when we first believe in Christ, we're forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. So this is, you know, this is just about for believers. It's like a, an artful way of saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And I have to say that, um, no. It's talking to Christians. If we, John says, confess our sins, John's a Christian. He's a, he's a campaigner at this point. He's been a Christian for decades. And um, he still has to do this apparently because that's what it says if we confess our sins. And so what I want to say is that um, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. You have a sin nature. You commit personal sin. Don't, don't pretend that you're self-righteous. And when you're aware of a sin, verse 9, if we confess our sins because of God's character, He cleans us up. He forgives us and cleans us up. But I want to say that this is not about your position in Christ. This is about the experience of a relationship that goes day by day, moment by moment. There was a beginning to your life, and now you're living it. And yes, positionally forgiven, experientially, there's a relationship between God. And when I'm wrong, when I, when I step out of bounds, I need to, I need to address it. Homo logeo is the word here in 1 John 1, 9. This word, homo logeo. And if I play etymology with it, homo, the same, logeo, to speak, I say the same thing or agree with God. But I don't think that that's, Vine says that, but I don't think that's what this means in John's usage. I don't think that's what it means to say the same thing or to agree. God, I'm a sinner. I agree with you. I think it's more specific and it involves telling the truth about a specific thing because it is our sins the sins of us if we confess our sins is a way of saying if we state the fact of what i have done and am therefore guilty of it does not refer to asking for forgiveness but when i tell God, and I confess my sins, I am seeking his forgiveness for sure. But there's a specific thing that's happening in the context. He's talking about lying versus telling the truth. And this is a place where you can go from darkness to light instantly by going from lying to yourself to telling the truth and sharing that in common with God. It's a fellowship factor. God, I've, I've done this. And it's a thing all through the scriptures when we become aware of a personal sin and we have a relationship with God to own it. I like the basketball. I don't know if it was this this way uh, here. I don't even know if it was this way in North Texas. But um, where I was from, whenever somebody uh, committed a foul on the basketball court, the, the ref would blow the whistle and then point at the person, you did it, you know, however they said it, number 20. And then they'd, they'd name his sin. So that everybody knew, oh, number 20. And what did, and what, I don't know if this is common, but number 20 is supposed to say, yep, did it. And it's like, not like he had another option, like, no, I withhold the owning of that sin. He's just supposed to say, yeah, I've got it. He, he kind of raised your hand. You're, t- you're owning. 
taking responsibility. I, I did that. I believe this is so vital for us when we become aware of a personal sin, but I don't think we're always aware of all our sins. I don't, I don't, I'm just a baby. I don't begin to know the righteousness of God, so I know everything that transgresses is righteousness, but I do know what he's told me and what he's helped me understand so far. So when my words go beyond God's expectations, I need to tell him. I have become aware recently of the vital nature of obedience has to do with having children. If you tell me to do something and I don't do it and pretend like you can't speak or I can't hear or you are dead because I do not do what you've told me to do, I consider that just as rebellious as doing something that I said not to do. Hey, don't touch that and they touch it. Well, that'd be a sin. But if I say, please, could you pick that up and bring that over here and they pretend as though I do not exist and do not do what they're told, I think that that is just as disobedient. And so I think, and John's going to bring this out in chapter 2, loving your brother. This is a sin. If you don't love your brother, you don't love God. You're not, the love of God isn't in you. Because he told you to, he commanded it done. So I believe sins of omission are just as disobedient to God as sins of commission. And so this, this means that I need to confess more than I thought. Ever catch yourself not loving somebody you're supposed to love? I mean, ever think about that? I'm supposed to, and I don't mean have affection toward. I'm not talking about what the world says love is. I mean, disregard self, consider the other. What does God want for that other person? And start acting in that direction. Have you ever caught yourself saying, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And um, that's a, that's a moment for first John 1, 9. And of course, verse 10, if we so if we should say that uh, we have not sinned, not committed sin, so we have no sin nature in verse 8, we have not committed personal sin in verse 10, then we're doing something far worse than lying to ourselves. It keeps getting worse through this cycle. We are poyao, making a liar of him. We're making God himself a liar. You're not making God a liar. You're blaspheming him. You're saying that he's a liar because he's saying you're a sinner. He's saying you have committed personal sin and you're not agreeing with him. That idea of telling the truth. And the, the word of him, his word, his logos, L-O-G-O-S, is not in you. His word is not in you. So we have a really important connection in this passage between God's righteousness and the truth. I think the truth is an aspect, telling the truth is an aspect of the righteousness of God. And so when you, because it's wrong to lie in this discussion here. So when you're lying against the truth about your sinfulness, well, that is a problem of fellowship with God itself. And when you're lying about being in fellowship with him or having fellowship and walk, when you're not walking in the light, well, that's itself a lie. And so there's this tight connection between the light and the truth. God wants us to be about his word because he says truth, truth, and then his word is not in us. What I have to conclude from this as I close this evening, and I appreciate your patience with my uh, half, half my resources tonight. Half my resources tonight. Um, I want to say that if the word of Christ in us is going to help us tell the truth so that we're having fellowship with God, then you have to connect the filling of the Holy Spirit in this age to fellowship with God. You have, because he says his word is not in you. The filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you in Colossians 3.16 is to be characterized by the thinking of God in his word. And so if I'm to tell the truth about myself and thereby have fellowship with God, and that depends on the word being in me, then there has to be a tight connection between the enjoyment of the filling of the Spirit and fellowship with God. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That connection between the Holy Spirit's ministry of filling and the enjoyment of the believer in fellowship with God is not explicitly stated in 1 John chapter 1, but I think it is um, it's two sides of the same coin. Having fellowship with God is in part 
enjoying the Word of God, characterizing you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this connection. We've learned several things that all intersect in this Christian spiritual life, like walking by faith, not by sight, and now walking in the light as you yourself are in the light. Thank you for the provision of your grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. That when we do commit personal sins, there's always forgiveness and cleansing in a fellowship sense available to us. Help us take advantage of this, Father. But as John will say, I tell you these things, little children, so that we not sin. Help us be equipped to resist the temptation to submit to the flesh because we're, we're one, because we're sold out to serving you and the power of your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.